Well, good morning and happy Easter. I'm so glad that you're here today. What an incredible week this has already been as we have journeyed alongside on the last week of Jesus' earthly life. If you were here with us on Friday evening, we reflected on the sacrifice that God made for us in the gift of Jesus. And Scripture tells us that He, meaning Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that we might receive the righteousness of God. And on that Friday, we were able to receive eternal life because we know that God removed our guilt and our shame on that cross. That as we sang about just a few minutes ago, that my shame was a ransom that God, that Jesus, he faithfully bore, amen? amen? And we know that today we celebrate because the tomb is empty that God, through Jesus Christ, has conquered not only death, but he's conquered sin itself. And so I don't know if you know this or not, but 2,000 years later, you can still go to the tomb of Jesus and it's still empty. And because it's empty, we have reason to celebrate today. So that's what we are doing. And our choir and orchestra and musicians have faithfully done that. So I sure appreciate their leadership in two services this morning. Earlier this year, we lost someone that I would have to say next to the Apostle Paul was the most influential person in the Christian faith. He definitely led more people to the Lord than anyone else. Who am I talking about? Billy Graham, making sure you're awake this morning, that's good. Billy Graham was an incredible preacher and proclaimer of God's word. He preached to over 200 million people. Let that number sink in. 200 million people and he, he preached in over 400 crusades or rallies in 185 countries and on six different continents. Now, if you ever heard Billy Graham, whether you heard him on television or whether you heard him um, live, if you were able to have the blessing to go to one of his crusades, you know that when you left, his goal was to help you answer a very simple question. He wasn't really a, a complex preacher that had all these points and you had to figure out and have a dictionary. No, no, no. He had one question that it was his desire that when you left that service, that you could answer with ultimate clarity the answer to that question. That question was this. How can I know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that I'm going to heaven when I die? How can I know with absolute certainty that when I die, that I will enter into heaven? Out of all the sermons that Billy Graham preached, I'm not sure there were many in which he didn't address this question at some point. And so I wonder today, if, if you were to go and ask someone, maybe at lunch or maybe um, tomorrow at school for our students, when you die, if you were to die today, do you know for certain that you would go to heaven? My guess is that some of the responses would be, well, I sure hope so. I'm trying my best. Well, I think I will. But friends, hear me out on this. Thinking and hoping and wishing and guessing, it's not good enough when you're talking about where you are going to spend all of eternity. So today, my goal in our few moments together this morning is to answer this very simple question so that you know with absolute clarity and that you don't have a shadow of doubt in your mind. Now here's the good news. The good news is that God makes it crystal clear in his word. If you've read the Bible, God doesn't try to hide it or try to, to hide it. You gotta understand certain different, no, no, no. All the way through his word, he makes it so clear and he wants you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt what it takes to go to heaven. So this morning, we're gonna go back to the basics. The way we're gonna go back to the basics is by looking at the most famous verse in all of the Bible. Pop quiz, what is it? 
John 3, 16, whether you grew up in church, whether it's your first time in church, you've probably heard John 3, 16 before. So we're going to look at this one verse and try to see how God tells us exactly what it takes for a person to go to heaven. By going back to the basics, we're gonna do like a lot of uh, coaches do at the beginning of, of training camp. You remember the famous one of Vince Lombardi? He would hold up a football, and what would he say? Gentlemen, this what? This is a football. You're shocked that they let me put a football up here with all these beautiful flowers, aren't you? <laughs> but they did. This is a football because he wanted to make sure that they knew, I'm not gonna take anything for granted before we get to the plays, before we get to all that we're gonna do, let's get back to the basics. And gentlemen, let's make sure that we start with the basics and that's what we're going to do this morning. So let's read this verse, the verse that I believe summarizes the entire Bible. I think if you take all the verses of the Bible and say, what's the most important? I think if you know this one verse, you understand what it takes for a person to have absolute clarity and certainty that they're going to heaven. We're going to read this verse together, but I want to warn you, it may be a different translation than you memorize. So before you start saying thou and shall and all those things, this is going to be the English Standard Version. So uh, the words are going to be on the screen. Let's read John 3.16 together. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So what I hope to do this morning is to take this one verse and really just break it apart. There's four different phrases in this one verse and I wanna look at it phrase by phrase with my intention of when you leave here in just a few moments that beyond a shadow of a doubt you know what it takes to go to heaven but on a practical reason, a practical purpose, you can know for certainty, am I going to heaven when I die? The first thing that we must know is we must recognize God's love. You say, well, how much does God love you? We'll look at the very first phrase of that verse. It says that for God so loved the world. The Bible tells us that, that God is love. That's his nature, that's his character, that's who he is, he is love. But unfortunately, I feel like we've taken this word love and we've kind of cheapened it a little bit. We use it so often that we've kind of taken away the deep meaning that should be attached to it. We can say, hey, I love you, man. We can say, I love my team. But we also say, I love pizza. I love Chick-fil-A, right? They don't all seem to mean the same thing here. But we know that in this verse, it doesn't just say that God loves us. It says that God, what? God so loved the world. The love that God has for you, the, God that, the, the love that God has for me, it's an extravagant love. It's a love, in fact, that's beyond our own comprehension. Friends, I want you to understand this, that God loves you when you're obeying him. He loves you when you're doing everything right, you're reading your Bible in the morning, you're praying, you're, you're obeying scripture, you're coming to church. But you know what? He also loves you when you're disobeying him. God loves you when you feel it, and you feel like, man, I can feel God's presence, I'm walking so closely with him. But God also loves you when you feel like he's so distant and you're not sure where he is. God loves you at every stage of your life. And you say, how can this be? The reason that God can love you that way is because God's love is not based upon who you are or what you've done. This is where, where so many of us live. We live in this spot that we think, well, well, God loves me. He approves of me when I'm doing good things. So when I'm walking with the Lord, when I'm doing things right, man, God loves me. But then we go to the flip side and we say, but then when I'm disobeying, when I'm not doing it right, man, God's mad at me and he doesn't love me. So we constantly, we live this defeated life because he loves me today, he doesn't love me tomorrow, and his love is based upon what I do and who I am. 
But if you read the Bible, what God's word clearly tells us is that God's love for you, it is not based upon your performance. It's not based upon what you do. Instead, God's love for you, it's based on what Jesus Christ has already done for you. And that is great victory that we have this Easter celebration. See, I believe that you can take all of the other religions of the world. Take your pick, name whatever religion you want. And if you were to try to summarize all of those religions in one single word, the one word I would choose would be do. It's all about what you do to earn love, what you do to earn forgiveness or earn salvation. But here's the incredible thing about Christianity. The word for Christianity isn't do. If you were to summarize Christianity in one word, that one word would be what? Done. Because when Jesus Christ was on the cross and when he proclaimed in a loud breath, when he said, it is finished, what he meant was he's saying, your guilt, your shame, your debt, it has been covered, it is paid in full, you are forgiven, it is done, it is finished. You see, you can't make God stop loving you. You can try, but he won't. Why? Because God's love for you, it's not based upon what you do. God's love for you is based on the fact that he chooses to unconditionally love you at every stage of your life. Let me share with you two verses that that confirm this because then again, what I say really is important. And I hope that everything that you hear, whether it's in this church or another church, that you will always go and verify it to God's word. God's word is the only thing that will stand the test of time. Not my words, not anyone else's words. So let's see what scripture says to affirm this statement. We see in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. It says, In this the love of God was made manifest among you. That God did what? He sent his only son. Sounds a lot like John 3.16, doesn't it? He sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And then in the next verse, he says, In this is love. Okay, so if you're wanting to know how do I know what love is? This is what love is. Love is not that we have loved God, no, 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 but that he loved us and that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now I know you're saying, whoa, whoa, you lost me that word. I stop right there. Propitiation only means a very simple word. It means that, uh, simply means that he atones for our sin, that he covers our sin. See, God didn't just say he loves us. It's one thing to, to say that you love someone. It doesn't cost much, does it? It's just words that are coming out of your mouth. Hey, I love you. But God didn't just say it. God demonstrated it. And the way that he demonstrated his love for us was by giving us the most expensive gift that he ever could have given us, the most expensive treasure that he could have given us by giving us the gift of his one and only son to pay for your sin, the gift of his son to purchase your salvation. Now, I have no doubt in my mind that on this Easter Sunday, that there's at least one person here today that the only reason that you're here is to make mama happy, to make grandmother happy. And listen, I'm so glad you're here. I'm thrilled. I hope that you felt loved and felt welcome while you're here. But I happen to believe that God has a deeper purpose for why you're here other than just fulfilling someone's obligation. I believe that he has a message of truth in his word to share with you. So I hope that you'll hang with me for for just a few more minutes. 
You see, on this Easter Sunday, what we celebrate is we know that over 2,000 years ago that Jesus Christ was, was, uh, not only was he arrested and beaten, but eventually he was um, crucified. They buried him in a tomb, and three days later he came back from the dead. But we also know that um, the resurrection, that the, the Romans were afraid that the disciples may steal his body and that they would steal his body and their fear was that then the disciples or the followers of Jesus would claim that, that he had come back from the dead. So Pilate made some strict orders to make sure that this didn't occur. There are three things that, that Pilate did to ensure that the disciples didn't steal his body. The first thing they did was they put Jesus in a tomb and they rolled a huge stone in front of this tomb. Scripture tells us it wasn't just a small stone that one person could, could move, but it says that it was this giant stone that took multiple men to move this stone. Not only that, but they permanently sealed it with the Roman seal. I think one of the funniest verses in the Bible is where Pilate says, and make the tomb as secure as possible. Like you can make anything secure from God, right? So they put this Roman seal, so even if you could get multiple men to roll the stone away, that there would be this permanent seal that would, would lock it in place so that you couldn't get him out. And then the third thing they did was they, they posted guards outside of Jesus' tomb. Now when you read scripture and you look at history, this is the first time, and I don't know if it was the last, that they put living guards outside of a dead man's body to protect that body. But they did, because they were afraid of what would happen. And you know how the story ends. It's why we celebrate today on Easter, but really it's why we celebrate every Sunday morning is we know that, that uh, three days later there was an earthquake. The angels show up, the stone was rolled away, the guards fall back in a faint. And by the way, quick aside here. That stone was rolled away, not so that Jesus could come out. A lot of times you see the Easter pictures and you see the angel moving the stone away and then Jesus just waiting to come out. No, Jesus didn't need the angel to roll the stone away to come out. The reason the stone was rolled away was so that the women, remember Mary and Mary were coming to the tomb? It was so that the women and the disciples and the skeptics who didn't believe that Jesus had really come back from the dead, that we could look in and see that the tomb really is empty and that Jesus really did as just as he says he would, he came back from the dead. The second thing that we must do in order to know for certain that we have eternal life with God in heaven is to receive his gift. The first part of the verse says, for God so loved the world. That's understanding that we recognize that God loves us. But then the second part of that verse says that he gave, there's a gift, he gave his only son. Now, look at this closely with me. Look at the second part of, of verse 16. What does it say that God gave us? Does it say that God gave us a good man? Nope. Does it say that God gave us a prophet? Nope. This is interactory. All right, y'all can come back with me. Does it say that God gave us a, a good teacher? The answer is no. No. It says that what he gave us was his son. When God gives a gift, he doesn't give just 90%. He gives everything that he has. He gives the very best that he has to offer. He gives us his one and only son, Jesus Christ. So we know that according to John 3, 16, that second part, that he gives us this gift, but how is it that we can receive the gift? Someone can offer you a gift, but it's not yours unless you do what? You have to receive it from them. So how do we receive this gift that God offers the world? We see that in, in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Paul says that for grace you have been saved. I want you to look at that word there. We're going to come back to that. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not your own doing. It is the, look, here's our word again. It's the what? The gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one can boast. In other words, I can't earn this gift. It says it right there that this is not of your own doing. It's just a gift. What's the gift that he gives us? The gift that he gives us is the gift of grace. But what's grace? Grace is simply when God gives you what you need, not what you deserve. You may say, well, I just don't think it's fair because I think God's not giving me what I I deserve. No, no, be careful saying that. Because you know what we deserve. We deserve to be eternally separated from God. But God in his grace, he doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what we need. Thank goodness for that. But Blake, you say, why did Jesus have to die? When I was younger, I used to think that. I used to think, I understand that I need to be forgiven of my sins, that that heaven is perfect, that I'm not, that I have sin in my life, and that God can't allow sin into heaven. But what I can't comprehend, what I can't make sense of is, why did Jesus have to die for me to go to heaven? I mean, if God is God, why can't he just say, well, I'm just going to wipe your sins clean? And I'm going to make up a new rule. Now, in order to go to heaven, I'm just going to say, you're forgiven. Boom. He's God. He could do that, right? Well, we all know that we've all sinned. We just read that a minute ago. But we're going to see in Romans 6, 23, look at this verse with me. For the wages of sin is death. We're going to look at this word wages here in a minute. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. I think all of us here, if we're honest, could admit, hey, I know I've sinned. I know I've messed up because we're all sinners. So we can comprehend that part. And we like the fact that God is love. And we talked a minute ago, that is 100% true. God is love. That is his character. That's his nature. But sometimes we've gotten away from the other side of God, the other side of the coin. Yes, God is love, but God is also what? A just God. And because he's a just God, when someone breaks God's laws, There's a penalty that God puts in place, and if you break God's law, then you gotta pay his penalty. Just like in America, if you break the law, there's a penalty you gotta pay here. God has a law, and God has a penalty, and he says right here, what's the the penalty? For the wages, another word for that is penalty. The penalty of sin is death. And we've already said we've all sinned, so we know that because of our sin, we're going to die. You and I, we deserve to be punished for all the wrong that we've done. Now, that's the bad news. But thank goodness the verse doesn't end there. It doesn't just tell us the bad news. Then he goes on to the flip side and gives the good news. He then says that everything wrong that you have ever done, guess what? It has been placed upon Jesus, and Jesus Christ has paid for all of your mistakes. He has paid for all of your guilt and your shame. He took away every single one of your sins. For those of us who have placed our trust and confidence in Jesus, he has nailed it to the cross, and we bear those sins no more. We have been forgiven. We have been free. That's the grace that God gives us through his son, Jesus Christ. Look at this next verse with me. I think this is one of the most amazing verses in the Bible. And if you've heard me preach before, chances are you've heard me um, use this verse because I love this verse. It explains so much. It's often called the, the great exchange. He says this, For our sake he, meaning God, made him who is Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. So let me change that up. We know that the first he is God, the second him is Jesus. So let me just read it that way. It says that for our sake, God made who? Jesus to be sin 
who knew no sin. Why? Because he was perfect, because he was holy. So that in him, so that in Christ, not anything that we do, we might become, here's the best news you can hear all day, the righteousness of God. Follow along with me for just a second. God says, I'm going to take every single thing that Blake Kersey has ever done wrong, all of his selfishness, all of his pride, all of his sinfulness, and I'm gonna take all of it and I'm going to place it upon Jesus. The penalty of his sin is gonna be placed upon him who knew no sin. And then Jesus is going to pay the penalty that Blake doesn't have to pay anymore. And that's great news right there. That God made Jesus, who was perfect, who knew no sin. He made Jesus, when he was on the cross, he became the sin of the world. Jesus became the most vile, detestable thing that has ever existed when he was on that cross. And when he was hanging on that cross, this is what God did. God took all of his wrath and he poured his wrath against sin upon Jesus, who represented the sin of the world. Why did he do that? So that we could be forgiven. Friends, if that doesn't want to make you sing amazing grace, how can it be? That's God's grace that he gives us. But then it continues. Then it says that God says that I'm then going to take all of Jesus' goodness, all of his righteousness, his right standing before God, and then I'm going to place that on Blake, fill in your name. Why? So that you can live for eternity with me in heaven. I'm taking all of the sin, I'm paying the penalty, I'm giving you the reward. That's the great exchange that occurs through the cross of Jesus Christ. Think through this with me, friends. If there were any other way for you or I to be able to go to heaven, any other way except by the fact for God sending Jesus Christ to come and die on the cross and for us to trust him as our savior, why in the world would God waste his ultimate treasure on sending Jesus down the cross? There's no other way. We may wish there were another way. We may wish that, well, my good works, my good deeds, well, I'm better than I know someone else. But no, if there were any other way except by trusting in Jesus Christ as savior and as our Lord, that we could go to heaven, that we could have eternal life, then why in the world would God send Jesus to die on the cross if this was just one of many ways? It's not true. See, you can't earn it. You're not good enough. You say, oh, but Blake, I know I'm a lot better than my, my friends. Well, that's good, but I don't know if anyone's told you or not, but God doesn't grade on a curve. God's standard is perfection. And you and I know that we simply don't measure up. So the first thing we do is we recognize God's love, that God so loved the world. Then we understand that we must receive God's gift, that he gave us this gift of eternal life. And then third and finally, no, not finally, you wish it was final, don't you? <laughs> not third. <laughs> we respond to this offer that whoever believes in him, this is God's proposal that he is making to you. Say, so how do I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior? It says it right there. Whoever what? Read that next word. Whoever believes in him. Believing simply means to, to trust in, to cling to, to rely on. It means that you commit yourself to trusting God in every area of your life, your future, your relationships, your finances, everything. Can you say, I trust God in every area of my life, because that's what it means to believe in Jesus. 
Now, if I'm being honest here this morning, I'm just being 100% transparent. Let me share with you what my greatest concern is. My greatest concern as a pastor is that there are so many people who attend church, this church or any other church, on a regular basis. And you believe in Jesus up here. You know all about Jesus. You know the stories. You know the miracles. You know all about God. But you're not trusting him. You're not clinging to him. You're not relying on him. And that belief is totally different than just knowing about him. So here's the question that I want every person to answer today. Whether you're a deacon at this church, whether you're a former staff member, whether this is the only time you've ever stepped foot in church, this is a question that I want every single person to wrestle with. Do I trust him completely? Do I cling to him? Or am I simply relying on the fact that I prayed a prayer in third grade at Vacation Bible School and my life was never transformed before him? Friends, I promise I'm not trying to scare anyone into making a decision. That's not my tactic at all. That's the last thing I want to do is scare you into making a decision to follow Christ. But my biggest fear as a pastor is so many people who are attending church on a regular basis and they think that because somewhere in their past they prayed a prayer, but their lives have not been transformed by the gospel because the gospel is not the most important thing in their life. They think that when they die and they meet their Savior, they're going to hear, come on in, my, my good and faithful servant. But instead, what they're going to hear is, depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you intimately. You thought that it was just good because you had head knowledge. Yes, you may have prayed a prayer long ago, and that's great. I prayed a prayer too. But there is nowhere in Scripture that you can show me that simply praying a magical prayer without a transformed life is the key for what God says this is what salvation is. No, it's praying a prayer followed with a commitment that we are going to trust, that we're going to rely, that we're going to cling to Him, that we are going to turn over complete control of our lives to Him. Friends, if you don't hear anything else that I say this morning, don't miss these next two verses. We know Romans 3.23 that says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've already talked about that. But then verse 24, it continues. And it says, and they are, we are justified, a word we're gonna talk about, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be justified? Justification is simply the act of God, nothing that we can do. It's the act of God where he declares instantly. He declares the believing sinner righteous, which means a right standing before God, not based on their own works, but based on the work of Jesus. So when you trust Christ with your life, when you make that commitment to follow him, it's nothing that you do. He instantly declares that you are made clean, righteous, purified, based on what Jesus has done for you. Let me give you a simple definition you might be able to remember. Justification means that God makes you just as if I'd never sinned. Clean and spotless, just as if I'd never sinned. So we are justified, just as if I'd never sinned, by grace. And then it says that we're redeemed by Christ. What does redemption mean? Redemption means to set free by paying a price. Redemption actually is an old slave trading term. Redemption means that you're going to purchase someone back. So let's say that we're all slaves today and we're all we're standing on the trading block to be auctioned. And someone raises their hands and says, you know what, I'm gonna buy them for $100,000. 
They purchase us. So then we walk up to that person who purchases us, and then he looks at us and he says, okay, you're free to go. You were purchased to be set free. Friends, that's exactly what redemption is. Don't you see exactly that's what God did for you? God purchased your salvation. He purchased it with the most expensive gift that he could have done by purchasing it with the blood of Jesus Christ. And because you have been set free, then we can stop living in guilt. We can stop living in shame because it's been paid for. Live in the victory that is yours through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. And now for the final phrase. We must rely on God's promise. What's the promise that he gives us? The last phrase says that we should not perish, but have eternal life. Do you know that you were made to live forever? When God created you, he didn't create you just to live 70, 80, 90 years here on this earth. One day you're going to die a physical death. Every single one of us. Last time I checked, the mortality rate's 100%. We're all gonna die. But God says that we were created to live forever. I've just shared with you in the last few moments exactly what it takes to have eternal life, that we can spend eternity with him in heaven. You may have entered this morning saying, I know there is not a chance in the world that based on what I've done in the past, based on who I am, just based on my thoughts alone, that there's any way I can go to heaven. You know what? You're right. You're 100% true. You cannot go and enter into heaven based on who you are. But instead, what you need to do today is to step off the throne of your life and let Jesus take control of your life. Put him where he deserves to be. There's one last verse I want to share with you before I close. On the night of Jesus' trial, he stood before six illegal trials and Towards the end, Pilate stands with Jesus next to him and he's talking to the crowd and he's trying to decide, am I going to release Jesus or am I going to crucify Jesus? And he looks at the crowd and this is what he says in Matthew 27, verse 22. It says, Pilate said to the crowd, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Friends, that same question that Pilate asked the people is the most important question that you will ever answer with your life. What shall I do with Jesus? It's of utmost importance because how you answer this question has eternal implications. So let me ask you personally this morning, what are you going to do with Jesus? Is he a good luck charm? Is he something that we just go to whenever we're in need? Or are we clinging to him? Are we relying on him? Are we trusting him with all that we have? Let me share this with you. You don't have to have all of your doubts answered. You don't have to have all of your fears relieved before you can come and trust in Jesus. I don't have everything figured out. I don't understand everything about the Bible. I certainly don't understand everything about Jesus, but that hasn't stopped me from trusting with my life. See, I don't have to understand how everything works in order to trust it. There are a lot of things in this world I have no clue how they work, but I still trust them. How does the internet work? I mean, literally. I don't know how, but I trust it. How do cell phones work? I can be right here in Decatur, Alabama. I can call my friends in the Dominican Republic, and instantly I can connect. I have no clue how it works, but I use it every day. 
Here's one that really throws me off. How do taste buds work? I mean, seriously. You put a food in all of it, you can make, you think about that warm, buttery, cinnamon roll that Elizabeth makes that are so good, and you think, man, you're hungry now, aren't you? I don't know how taste buds work, but I trust them and I know that they do. Here's the thing. You don't have to have all of your doubts answered before you can trust Christ as your Savior. A lot of people are saying, well, I just don't understand this. Well, I don't really know how does, how does evolution work and what about, was it a literal seven days of creation or, or what about the end? I don't really care right now. What I care is this question, what are you gonna do about Jesus? What are you going to do now that you know for certain the only way for us to spend eternity with him is to trust him as our Lord and Savior? So right now, I would like everyone just to bow your heads and close your eyes. We've just shared exactly what Scripture says, not what Blake thinks, not what Blake cares about, but what Scripture says, this is the way that we can be certain, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that this is what it takes for us to accept this free gift of eternal life. So today, right now, I have no idea where you are spiritually. My hope and prayer that is if you are far from the Lord, that today the Holy Spirit is drawing you in. Maybe today, for the very first time, you want to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've relied on your good works. You've relied on your church attendance. You've relied on the fact that your grandparents were um, very important in your church in the past, but you have never fully trusted, relied. You've never clung to Jesus with every aspect of your life. And maybe you'd want to begin that commitment today. We can begin that commitment with a prayer. Now, I know a minute ago, I said there's nothing magical about a prayer, and that's true. But the prayer is not a magical words that you put together. It's the beginning of a commitment that you're going to make to follow Jesus. So if you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, you can just pray this prayer more than words. Mean it in your heart silently after me. Dear Jesus, I don't understand everything but I want to thank you for loving me. I want to thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross to pay for my penalty. And Lord, right now, the best that I know how, I trust in you. I cling to you. I rely on you. And I ask that Jesus would come into my life and be my Lord and Savior. Would you make me just as if I had never sinned? It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.